0: The following message is from the 2013 IBCD Summer Institute, Churches Equipped to Care. All right, we are going to start. They always want us to announce the title of these sessions first. This is Hebrew Exegesis of Leviticus. I hope you were planning, I don't know, maybe it's on gospel-centered marriage counseling, four pillars for glorifying God through oneness in marriage. And they also always want us to say who it is speaking. This is Dr. Bob Kellerman. Uh, in your notes or handouts, it's on uh, pages 79 to 82. So if you're wanting to follow along, it's pages 79 to 82 in your notes. Let me open us, open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this conference already and how you've been blessing us. We thank you for John and his message to us on, on grace and a grace that changes us, helps us to say no to sin and say yes to godliness as we think about that gospel grace as it relates to marriage, give us grace as we present and hear, apply to our own relationships and to our counseling. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I know that 10-minute break seems really brief. I, I speak a lot at the uh, Faith Biblical Counseling Training Conference in Lafayette. And it's a great conference. If you've ever been there, though, their breaks are like 30 seconds. I mean, they pack that in with great content, so we can be thankful for, we, for having 10 minutes here instead of uh, 30 seconds between sessions. There on page 79 of your notes, you've got the uh, title, and then you also have toward the bottom there, the presentation focus. And let me just highlight that, because I want to walk you through what we want to discuss for the next hour. We say that every biblical counselor, every pastor wants to help couples. I mean, that's obvious, to enjoy a God-honoring, mutually meaningful marriage. And then many have taught what I call and others call something similar, the leave, cleave, weave, and receive biblical marriage blueprint. That's Genesis 2, 23 to 25. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So we want to help. We've taught principles like this, so the question, why are so many Christian marriages struggling? In this session, we want to learn how to use four pillars, these pillars of leaving, weaving, cleaving, and receiving, for building oneness in marriage to address heart motivation. I think what's happened many times is we've used these principles apart from the gospel indicatives, the fact that we've already been changed by Christ apart from heart issues and we've used them simply as gospel principles or gospel in- imperative rules but taking out of the context of the heart. So rather than practicing solution-focused marriage counseling, I'm praying that this session will help to further equip you to offer SOUL, S-O-U-L, Solution-focused, gospel-centered marriage discipleship. And I, I, we just had a confession time up here as... Four of us speakers, let me give another confession time. For many years, I would teach the Genesis 2, 23 to 25, as principles, but I would teach them outside of the context of this gospel-centered focus. And as I mentioned a few moments ago, part of my ministry calling, I think, is to help you to maybe learn from my mistakes so you don't have to make those same mistakes. So let's think about this idea of gospel-centered marriage counseling. On page 80 the big idea our marriage our biblical marriage counseling duty or if you will our calling what is our calling as biblical marriage counselors well i think in general we can think of it like this the first duty of a true leader is to define reality a pastor in a church wants to help people to define reality biblically with the biblical vision for life and ministry i mean this conference is helping us to define reality related to biblical counseling. It's a word-saturated conference. It's a gospel-centered conference. It's helping us to define reality. Now, well, let's take this into the idea of the first duty or calling of the biblical marriage counselor is to define marital reality. Now, think about this. Many of you have probably done premarital counseling. I've done that quite a bit myself. And one of the struggles that I have with premarital counseling is you have these starry-eyed people who are so thinking about the blissfulness of, of their coming marriage that when you talk to them about potential issues and conflicts, they're like, oh, come on, this person, a conflict? And the other part in premarital counseling is many times the premarital couple is really thinking they're going to meet my needs and they're going to make me happy. There's an unspoken reality that they're assuming that marriage somehow is meant to meet my needs. And to make me happy. So, so one of our callings as biblical marriage and premarital counselors is to help people and to communicate what the ultimate goal of marriage is all about. And, and if it's not to make me happy and meet my needs, then what is it? And if we skip this marital reality lesson with people, what will happen? So let's talk a little bit about that. Let's lay the Christ-centered foundation of marriage And we're going to talk about two typical marriage counseling problems that result when we do not define marriage based upon God reality. There's self-reality. You're going to make me happy. You're going to make me feel good about myself. And there's God reality. And without God reality, if we skip that, two problems are going to fester. The first problem I would identify this way. Problem number one, self-centered goals. The person continues to think, marriage is about meeting my needs. One marriage counselor said it this way, this attitude about marriage is it's two ticks and no dog. Let that sink in for a minute. Two ticks sucking one another in the blood and the life out of each other and no host giving to the other person. So I say in our notes, we have misdefined the goal of marriage so that it becomes about me and my needs instead of following God's ultimate threefold purpose for marriage which are, take a look at these briefly. First purpose for marriage. Every marriage is meant to represent the Trinity. Think about that. Every marriage is meant to represent the Trinity. We know we're created in the image of a Trinitarian God. The Trinity is God's perfect relationship within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And and what does it model? It models unity in diversity with equality and distinction. And marriage is to do the same. Now, we could take some time, and I'll just take a brief amount of time to talk about the Trinity. Think about that sentence. A brief amount of time to talk about the Trinity. But when we go back to John 1, John styles John 1 as an echo of Genesis 1. And we're told that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now, John could have used a word for was that was in the aorist tense that would have been a snapshot. And it basically would have meant that I happened to go back in time, and I I took a snapshot picture, and the father and son happened to be together. But instead, and we believe in verbal plenary inspiration, every single word and even every single tense of Scripture is inspired. He used the imperfect tense, which is a past continuous action. It's a video. And what John is saying is, no matter when we would take our time traveling back in time, before the beginning, we would always see father son and holy spirit in continuous uninterrupted communion and relationship you know in john 1 18 we're told that the the son was in the father's bosom it's a word that john uses later to describe himself the disciple whom jesus loved at that fellowship meal leaning on the bosom of christ a picture of the most intimate of fellowship i talked this morning about when our kids were young and we play eye contact and kind of have eye socket to eye socket, well, the Trinity is soul contact, soul to soul, uninterrupted contact. In John 17, Jesus talks again with His fearful disciples and He talks about the glory that's shared within the Trinity. We are meant in our marriages to, in a small way, represent something of the shared intimacy and the shared glory within the Trinity so just stop to think about that for a moment if you are married how would representing the Trinity and that perfect harmonious relationship put a halt a screeching halt to that next disagreement that we would be having as a husband and wife purpose number one every marriage is meant to represent the Trinity God's perfect relationship father son and Holy Spirit secondly Every marriage has a second purpose. Every marriage is meant to reflect Christ in the church. Now, this is one that we think of most often, Ephesians 5:18 to 33, how Christ loves the church and gave himself sacrificially for it, how the church respects and submits to Christ. Uh, we understand this idea that the marriage is to reflect Christ in the church. And again, how would that goal of reflecting Christ in the church change our marriage counseling? Second or third purpose of biblical marriage. Every marriage is meant for couples to assist each other to become more Christ-like. Now, we talk in this conference about one another ministry. What is the greatest opportunity for one another ministry for biblical counseling if it's not husband-wife relationships? Let me take you to Colossians three eighteen to 19 where Paul gives kind of the reader's digest of the Ephesians 5 passage, Colossians 3, 18 to 19, Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. We all know that, but you know what? We take it out of the preceding context. If we go back to Colossians three ten, we read, And you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. What's the context of this husband-wife command? that we're to become more and more like Christ. We take it out of the context of Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. That directly precedes what Paul's talking about in marriage. We think about that as something we do in a worship service on Sunday morning. Paul's saying that sort of one another admonishing, singing, praising, worshiping ought to be what we do in our homes. Every marriage is meant for couples to assist each other, other to become more Christ-like. couple summaries then. our marriage, Our marriages have the calling, opportunity, responsibility, and privilege of being three things. Living pictures of the Trinity, a living picture of Christ and the church, and a living picture of maturing image bearers. This is part of the new marital reality we need to help couples to understand when we're counseling with them. Without this God-centered perspective, the end result is going to be self-centered husband-wife relationship. Here's the second summary, and it really leads into our second point. The purpose of marriage is to reveal God's glory as we represent the Trinity reflect Christ in the church, and enhance the maturity of our spouse. Without this eternal perspective, we have a second problem in marriage that I would define this way, self-sufficient means. Working on my marriage is a self-improvement project. Let's assume we help the couple deal with the first problem, that marriage is not just all about me. You know, instead of what you see on the PowerPoint slide, everything pointing to me, you get the couple understanding. No, it's about ministering to one another. Well, you could have a second problem come up with that at that point. Well, great, I'm going to do it by pulling myself up by my bootstraps, by climbing the corporate ladder of marriage in my own effort, in my own strength. I'm going to be a loving, godly husband or wife. Well, it doesn't work that way, and here's why we say in our notes, we have misdefined the problem. With our marriages, and therefore we have misdefined the solution to our marriage problem. Here's three false diagnoses of, of the problem of marriage that I think we get involved in many times. Number one, we fight because we misunderstand each other. That's the surface-level diagnosis, and the surface-level solution, we need good teaching. Now, I'm imagining that this picture here is not singing Colossians 3:16. To each other. I think it's supposed to be a picture of a marriage fight. So what happens many times, and what we buy into as biblical marriage counselors, is something like this: We, well, you know, this couple's having fights because they misunderstand each other. Now, could that be part of the issue? Absolutely. But we take a symptom and we make it the major issue. So what do we do? We address the surface symptom with the surface solution, and we teach this couple about. Maleness and femaleness. And we teach this couple about understanding the roles of marriage. Is that good stuff? That's great stuff. But here's the problem. We can create more efficient manipulators. If the heart hasn't changed, all we've done is we teach people these principles is a more skillful way, a more effective way to manipulate my spouse because the heart has not changed. A second false diagnosis here. False diagnosis number two. We fight because we miscommunicate with each other. That's a surface diagnosis. So the surface solution, we need good communication skills. Now, that sounds good, right? I mean, poor communication skills are a problem in marriage. And we come in with the solution. We're going to teach relationship skills. And we're going to teach Ephesians 4, 25 to 32. Great stuff. But here's the problem. If we teach a hard-hearted spouse communication skills before addressing the heart we create more self-sufficient sinners so what we've done by dealing with surface issues we create more effective manipulators and we create more self-sufficient sinners let's put it together in the false diagnosis number three we lack intimacy because of our misunderstanding and our miscommunication that's the surface understanding of marital problems The solutions to our marriage problem is to apply good teaching and good communication skills. Now, some of you, if I don't go on, if I stopped you, it would be like throwing apples or oranges at me right now. Like, wait a second, this is good stuff. What could be wrong with that? I agree, it's good stuff when it's based upon a gospel understanding of what's really going on in the heart of the husband and wife. And let's take a look at that on page 81 of our notes. We can say it this way, problems in our home, begin with problems in our heart. Even before that, at the top of page 81, I say it this way. We must hear God's diagnosis of our true marital problems so that we can grasp God's solution to our marriage problems. Now, in James 4, 1-4, we have that great diagnostic question from James through the Spirit. What causes fights and quarrels among you? And see, we're not going to get an answer that's a surface answer from James. If not misunderstanding, if not miscommunication, what does he say? Don't they come from what? Your heart, your desires that battle within you. He's not saying desires are wrong. He's saying we mishandle our desires. You want something, but you don't get it. And what do you do when you don't get what you want? You kill and you covet. You manipulate and you retaliate. But you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. You do not have, and he says, because you do not ask God. It's a very particular Greek word for ask that means to humbly, submissively ask God. The very opposite of that self-sufficient, I'm going to make this work on my own. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motive. The King James, you ask amiss. And what are the wrong motives? It goes back to the two ticks and no dog that you may spend what you get, on your own pleasures. This couple, in James 4, 1-4, to does not understand God's purpose for marriage. And then James says something in verse 4 that if we don't understand the Old Testament, is totally confusing. He, he skips from these heart issues, and he says, you adulterous people. And it's like, where did that come from? Well, he's talking about spiritual adultery. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And we talk a lot in the biblical counseling world about idols of the heart, and that's a great principle. The Old Testament talks even more about spiritual adultery. I mean, sometimes you read a passage like Jeremiah 2, and you might get squeamish with the way Jeremiah, inspired by the Spirit, describes spiritual prostitution and spiritual whoredom and spiritual adultery, where people turn away from the God of the universe to other things. In fact, I believe... James had in mind a verse like Jeremiah 2.13 where he says, My people have committed two sins. It's Jeremiah 2.13. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now think about what's being said here. In the ancient Near East, why do you think Abraham and everybody else wanted to settle next to a spring? Because the other option was if you didn't have bubbling up, fresh spring water, you had a cistern. And what a cistern was, was basically a well dug in the ground at an incline so that the camel dung-filled streets and everything and and the water and the rain and the runoff would come into the cistern. At least you'd capture the water somehow, but it'd be dirty, it'd be filthy, it'd be stagnant. And then on top of that, Jeremiah says, top of everything else, it's a broken cistern that doesn't even hold any water. So God is saying you have a choice, a beautiful, bubbling, cool, fresh spring water, or you have a choice of camel dung-filled cistern water that isn't even water at all, that's stagnant. And he says, you're choosing this over the God of the universe. That's spiritual adultery. That's what James has in mind when he's speaking here. So that's why I say problems in our home, according to James, don't begin just with surface issue. They begin with problems in our heart. They begin with spiritual issues. Let me kind of just think through the process very briefly of what happens in our hearts that cause marital relationships. Number one, and just put this under problems in our home, number one, we forsake God. That's the first thing, the diagnostic indicator, when someone is sitting in front of you and they've got problems in their marital relationship, you know the first thing they've done, they've forsaken God. In other words, they've said, God is not the spring of living water. I'm going over here to this dirty cistern. But guess what? We still are thirsty people, right? We can forsake God all we want and not turn to Him, but we still have to worship something. So the second thing that happened is we require our spouse to be God. So as a husband who's not loving my wife Shirley, the diagnosis of Scripture is I've forsaken God as my spring of living water. I'm now requiring Shirley to be my God to fill me up to be my spring of living water. And then guess what happens? Process number three, surely fails me. Because guess what? Shirley's not God. Shirley's not the spring of living water. I forsake God. I insist that Shirley becomes God for me, my spring of living water. Shirley inevitably fails me. And James told us what happens. We manipulate and we retaliate. We covet and we kill. We manipulate. That means I redouble my effort to get Shirley to be my God for me. And it's not going to happen no matter how hard I try to force her to be God. And so once manipulation doesn't work, I kill and I covet, I now retaliate. If you're not going to meet my need, I'm not going to meet your need. Now imagine you've got that going on in my heart and you come to me with communication skills. It's not going to cut it. We can say it also like this. Problems in our heart requires spirit dependence, not self-dependent. If the only problem is I'm not understanding Shirley very well and not not communicating very well, then I can probably deal with that. But if my problem is I've forsaken God the spring of living water, I've required Shirley to be my spring of living water, she doesn't do it and I manipulate and retaliate, then we need something more. Paul Tripp says that every moment we're either resting in God's presence and power or taking life into our own hands. And that's what we need to understand in our marital conflicts and our marital counseling. If the problem is surface, then a quick fix answer would be a good solution. But if the problem is the heart, then we need a Christ-centered perspective. So my summary to this point: much of biblical marriage counseling and premarital counseling is exposing the old world worldly marriage narrative, which is what? Marriage is about meeting my needs. Marriage is about fulfilling my spouse's need and my own power. We replace that with the narrative of engaging people and living out the new biblical marriage narrative. And what is that? Marriage is about glorifying Christ by reflecting the Trinity, by by reflecting the the relationship of Christ and the church, but by helping my spouse to become more like Christ, and it's something that's done not by self-sufficiency, but by spiritual spirit dependence. Now, what I want to do in a moment is walk us through, finally, the point of Genesis. Before we get there, I want to take a look to illustrate this in Ephesians. Seeing the Christ-centered marital foundation at work in Ephesians. Now, Now, think with me about this. Somebody comes into your office or at Starbucks or wherever you're ministering to them. If you're a woman, you're counseling a, a spouse, maybe the, the female, the, the wife, your man, you're counseling the husband, meeting at Starbucks, and they start talking about problems in their marriage, and you're tempted to go maybe to Ephesians four twenty-five to 32 in communication skills, or you're tempted to turn just where I'm tempted to turn to Ephesians five twenty-one to 33. But guess what? Paul didn't start there, did he? He started at Ephesians 1, and I want to build a little bit of a biblical process of where Paul started that should indicate for us where we should start in our marital counseling. So notice where Paul starts. He starts with glorifying God. Ephesians 1, 1 to 23. You probably know that Ephesians uh, 1, 3 to 13 is known as a three-stanza hymn of praise to the glorious grace of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father has has chosen us and adopted us. God the Son has sacrificed his life to redeem us. God the Spirit has sealed us, guaranteeing our inheritance. Uh, In fact, many commentators believe that Paul uh, took it from a common early first century hymn of Trinitarian praise. See, when Paul starts talking about Christian living, he doesn't start with, the gospel imperatives in 4, 5, and 6. He starts with the gospel indicative, glorifying God. Now, how could starting here shift the couple's reality? Now, let's say a couple's in front of you and they're fighting. You say, let's talk about the Trinity. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that's exactly the way you move into their lives. But what if you started talking to them about your marriage is to be A mirror image of the beautiful Trinity. Your marriage is to reflect something of the glory of God in Ephesians 1, 3 to 13. That's where Paul starts, and that's where you and I need to start. But notice where Paul goes next guilty before God, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Paul moves to our absolute need for grace, he moves to total depravity, and he moves to total dependency. I mean, How would moving here with the couple rock their world rather than just racing them to some surface solution, but talking with them about the deepest issues of their heart and their sinful selfishness, their guilt before God? But Paul, of course, doesn't stop there. He moves to grace from God. And grace, notice, for salvation and for sanctification. Now, Paul goes to but God. You know, Paul moves and And by the way, the hand there, I think is a picture that doesn't even really capture what happened at our salvation, does it? Because it almost pictures that we're swimming and flailing and we're reaching up and then God pulls us up. That's not the picture, is it? We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are at the bottom of the seven-mile deep ocean, dead, and God resurrects us with Christ together. But you know... What Paul also does is he gives us but God not only for salvation, he gives us but God for sanctification. As he's talking throughout Ephesians, he tells us that we have the same power within us that raised Christ from the dead. So we're talking to couples that are struggling, and before we get to principles, we're talking to them about the fact that the power, Christ's resurrection power is within them. We're talking to those couples about things like Ephesians 3, uh, 20-21, that we have power that's above anything we could think or imagine. And it's at work within us because of the work of the Spirit in our lives. not to Him who is able to immeasurably do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to His power that is at work within us. You talk to the couple that that power is at work within them. You know, that precedes Ephesians 4. 25 to 32 in these principles of relationship. You know what else goes before Ephesians 4, 25 to 32 Ephesians 4, 17 to 24 about you are a new person in Christ. You have put off the old and you have put on the new Paul goes to all of that. And then he finally gets to growth through God's spirit. But notice the second part of that. It's not just growth in ourselves. It's growth through God's spirit. The way I like to think about this is a a spirit-dependent sandwich. And many times we don't understand this because we've got Ephesians 5, 21 to 6, 9. It goes all the way to 6, 9. This was called the household code. And it was husband-wife relationship. It was parent-child relationship. And in Paul's day, it was master-slave relationship. So this section of Scripture about family relationship goes all the way down to verse Nine of chapter six. Now what happens right before what we're seeing here in, in Ephesians 5:21? You've got Ephesians 5:18. "Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to deba- debauchery. Instead, this is a marital family section. Instead, husband be filled with the spirit. Instead, wife be filled with the spirit. instead, parent be filled with the spirit instead. Children be filled with the spirit. instead, masters be filled with the spirit instead. Slate, that's what we can put into the context here. Speak to one another, husbands, wives, with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Parents and children, sing and make music in your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God for everything in the name of Christ Jesus. That's the spirit-filled preface to all these commands about husband-wife relationships. But then, and again, we don't understand that there's This sandwich at the end, because we think it stops at verse 4, right? Parent-child relationship. But it goes all the way to verse 9 in Paul's day, this family household code. And what do we see in Ephesians 6.10? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. We can legitimately put in there, the paraphrase, finally, husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves, be strong not in your own power, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Husbands, wife, parent, child, put on the full armor of God. It is a spirit-dependent sandwich. So before you and I take counselees to Ephesians 4:25 to 32, and we give them the, the four relationship principles, before we take couples to Ephesians 5:21 to 32, and we talk about husband-wife relationships. Now, I said before, we do that, but first we help them to understand what we've seen here. Glorifying God, guilty before God, grace from God, and growth through God's Spirit. Here's our summary. Our pulpit ministry of the Word and our personal ministry of the Word, both, preaching, counseling, both, must be founded on the gospel indicatives, what we mean by that, what Christ has done for us, who we are in Christ, and then, just like Paul does in Ephesians, and then move to gospel imperatives, how we live out our new life before and through Christ. I often say to my students, if you forget everything else I've said, just remember this part. It's our first half hour of what we've done in an hour together. Counsel like Paul counseled. Paul didn't start with chapter 4 and 5. That's like a duh. Paul started with chapters 1, 2, and 3, and even 4 and 5 are surrounded by spirit filling and spirit dependence. That's a summary of what we've said to this point. We've taken the first half of our time together to give that gospel-centered background. And now what I want to do is I want to take us to these four pillars for building oneness in marriage, designed to delight each other and God. And I want to take this this leaving, weaving, cleaving, and receiving that we've probably taught and been taught, and I want to put it in a gospel-centered situation and perspective for us. First of all, what is leaving? Well it comes from the phrase a man will leave in Genesis two. Um, in fact, let me read that passage again. The man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. A man will leave. A couple concepts here about leaving. In the Hebrew, it has the idea of to separate, to sever or to cut or to untie. Now, I picture it a couple ways for us here. Uh, in our vernacular, we could describe it as cutting the apron string. You know, you're going from loyalty to independence on mom and dad to interdependence with each other. Maybe another way is, remember the show that went off a couple years ago, Everybody Loved Raymond? And Raymond could never separate from his mom. Mom... The mother-in-law controlled everything. This word is the opposite of that. It has the idea or the implication of shifting our core loyalty from parent to spouse. Now, it doesn't mean there's not loyalty that continues to the parent, but it's shifting our core loyalty. My core loyalty is no longer to my mom and dad. My my core loyalty is now, in my case, to Shirley. So so that's a general idea of what leaving means, but notice what we want to do next. Why is leaving vital from a Christ-centered, spirit-dependent perspective? Now, without this gospel-centered perspective, if you teach leaving, here's what a couple's going to hear. Finally, I'm free of my parents! That's what they're going to hear if it's all about two ticks and no dog. If it's all about marriage is about my happiness. It comes back to me. They're going to hear your teaching about leaving and they're going to take it out of biblical context and they're going to make it all about themselves. Finally, I'm free of mom and dad. And frankly, a lot of couples get married for that reason, right? Just tired of living under the thumb and the roof and the control of mom and dad. That's not a good, legitimate, biblical reason to get get, get married. So now if you have a biblical marital reality, and and you've helped them to understand a gospel-centered purpose for marriage an other-centered perspective, two dogs and no tick, if you will, then what the thinking is. The thinking goes something like this. Our core loyalty to each other displays our core loyalty to Christ. In other words, I love Shirley ultimately so other people can see something of a picture of my love for Christ and something of a picture of Christ's love for the church. Our core loyalty to each other displays our core loyalty to Christ. That's a world of difference, right? The first one, finally, I'm free from mom and dad. That's what they heard when they heard leaving. And the other one is, not that I'm free from mom and dad, it's that I am committed to serving sacrificially my wife. And notice what we say in the notes now. Now, some practical implications. You see, At this point, we can begin to give the how-to principle. If the couple understands, if the couple's still thinking it's all about me, don't go to the how-to principle. If the couple's understanding my core loyalty is about glorifying Christ, then I think it's legitimate. Now, I'll be honest, in the past, I've just kind of whipped through the principles, like I call them in-law bylaws, because frankly, I don't think the principles are that important as the big picture we've been sharing. You're wise enough to come up with some good biblical principles of this leaving process. But when I whip through them, people are like, slow down, I've got to get those, because they're hanging on every word which teaches us something. And we are so tied to principles. I'm going to give them to you just because we need them. But also, I think there's some legitimate things, but you could think up better ones than these. But these. are And remember what I used to do. I used to teach these next three principles almost in a vacuum. And what I was doing was creating more self-sufficient centers who were better manipulators. And I say that to my shame. And I want to save you from doing that. So I'll give you the principles because you're going to want them. And I put them out there so you only have to put blanks in because we're going to go kind of fast. But I call these in-law bylaws. First one is you help the couple to think about being other-centered. Seek to understand and appreciate your spouse's family culture. I think that's a good principle from leaving, especially when it's gospel-centered. Because it's other-centered. I mean, I'll give you a silly illustration of this. In my culture growing up, we opened presents on Christmas Eve. Every sane person opens presents on Christmas Eve. Probably most of you didn't do that, right? In Shirley's culture, they did it the normal way. They opened presents on Christmas morning. You know what? I was so mature that that didn't bother me. No, that's not true. I was so immature that I had to... You know what we can help couples to do in premarital counseling? And that's just one silly example. Begin to understand something about your family of origin. That's not secular talk. That, that's talking about leaving. If we're going to leave something, we need to understand what it is we're asking our spouse to leave. So let's understand each other. I think some good premarital counseling is understanding something about your family of origin. How you, do you do fights in your home? How do you do conflicts? How do you do meals? How do you do prayer? How would you do devotion? Understand and appreciate your spouse's family culture. I think that's a good principle. Here's the second one. From other-centered to Christ-centered, seek to create one new family culture to honor Christ. So it's not so much about, well, Christmas Eve, Shirley's way, or Christmas Eve, Bob's way. It's Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, our way together as we serve Christ together. And it's devotion. It's a way that Bob and Shirley are going to do it. Now, we're, we're blending together to separate ways of doing life. Seek to create one new family culture, but for what purpose? Not just for harmony, but to honor Christ. And a third principle, marriage-centered. Prioritize the husband-wife relationship. Prioritize it over the parent-child relationship, either my relationship to my parents or my relationship to our children when they come. And as much as Shirley and I tried to live this principle, once we hit the empty nest, our, we'll, Shirley will say this just as readily as I will. We've been married 32 years, seven years ago. 25th year of marriage was our toughest year of marriage. We were empty nesters for the first time, and we're looking at each other like, who is this person if they're not the parent of my children? And we worked hard to do all the stuff, all the dating and all the alone time. And, so let me caution you that that can be a difficult process, and so I think it is a good Principle, but, but let's get what's behind this. There's an attitude shift that we're talking about here. You don't just throw these principles out without the shifting of attitude. It's from a sense of it's my way to how can we jointly create a new way for Christ. See how that models something of the Trinity? The Trinity works harmoniously. And leaving and building something together is a small picture of that harmonious relationship. We, we launch some new joint adventure to glorify Christ together. And those are principles you can come up with, better ones. But remember the principle beneath the principle. Don't give principles unless they get the big picture that it's all about Him. Now, on page 82 of your notes, cleaving. This comes from the Genesis passage that talks about, and be united. Let's talk about what cleaving is. Well, it has the idea of attachment or permanence. Uh, to keep together, to tie, to unite. So leaving was to untie. You untie that core loyalty to your parents. Cleaving now is to tie and build a new bond together. In fact, it was used in the Old Testament of the attachment of a muscle to a bone. You ever torn a muscle? I mean, that's what's being talked about here. This is attachment. It was used of the grip of a hand on a sword in combat. And if you didn't grip it well, your life was at stake. It's attachment, it's permanence, it's, it's gripping. Cleaving together. I really got this picture when my second or third year teaching at Capital Bible Seminary. One of our students was from India. He was marrying a girl from India and in capitals near D.C. and they were getting married in Dallas and they asked me to come to be part of the wedding. Her pastor was from India, was doing the major part of the wedding and I was going to do a piece of the wedding. And when he did the wedding and he said what many pastors say, what, you know, we just kind of, and what God has joined together, let no man separate. He didn't say it like that. He looked first at the husband to be what God has joined together. Let no man separate. I'm just right over here, and I'm terrified when he's, he's saying. He, he turns, he looks at Stephanie. Stephanie, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Then he looks at the audience. and By now, I'm trembling. <laughs> what God has joined together, let no man separate. I'm about ready to run down there and say to Shirley, I'm loyal to you forever. I was terrified, but in a good way. And guess what? When I do marriages now, I do the same thing. And I hope I'm doing it out of a heart, passion to communicate to people something about what this cleaving means in Genesis chapter 2. Now, that's the picture from Genesis 2. Let's put it into perspective of a gospel-centered, spirit-dependent way of thinking. Why cleaving is vital. Why cleaving is vital from a Christ-centered, spirit-dependent perspective. Let's go back to the unbiblical part. So now it's a selfish two ticks and no dog first. You've just taught them about cleaving, but they don't get the gospel, Christ, other-centered perspective. What are they thinking? Yes, my hubby's going to cleave to me, so finally there's somebody that loves me and makes me feel like a real person. That's what a person's going to hear if they don't get the gospel-centered perspective. Finally, I feel whole, I feel loved because of this other person. I mean, that's the whole notion of romantic love in in TVs, movies, in, in our culture, isn't it? Finally, somebody who fills me, who what? Becomes my spring of living water. That's not a biblical concept. So don't teach cleaving outside of a biblical concept. With the biblical marital reality, it becomes something like this. Together, we express Christ-like loyal love. Together, we express Christ-like loyal love that gives the world a picture of Christ and the church. Together we express Christ-like loyal love that gives the world a picture of Christ and the church. My Hebrew professor in um, Bible college, this word that's translated off, often as covenant loyalty or loyal love, is hesed, or as he would say, kind of rolling the R, the Hebraic, chesed. We need to understand hesed. That's loyal love. That's what's being talked about here. That's gospel-centered marriage counseling. We are to give one another in cleaving hesed, loyal love, that is a small picture to an onlooking world of the hesed, the loyal love, the covenant loyalty of God the Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, we can share some practical implications, right? Two different ways a couple can look at this. Wow, my spouse is cleaving to me. They're the, my spring of living water. They're never going to say it that way, but that's what their heart is saying. I'm finally full. Or, boy, this cleaving stuff is important because the onlooking world's going to see something about the way Christ loves me with grace, love. Two totally different ways to understand Genesis 2 and cleaving. So now, some principles. One example, gospel communication principles. I've been talking about the Ephesians 4 25 to 32 you've heard different ways of presenting this you've taught it different ways i'm going to give you one way there's no magic here but just understand it comes in the context in ephesians of spirit dependence of glorifying the trinity so it is good to teach couples speak truthful words with love but think about the context now speak truthful words with love so that that loyal love matures my spouse and and I get more mature and we reflect Christ better and better. See, so you're teaching the same principle with a different application. Speak controlled words with patience. Ephesians four, twenty six to twenty eight. In you know, your anger, do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. You know what's being talked about here? Husband and wife, when you are angry at each other, you're giving the devil a foothold to have the onlooking world say, well, if that's how Christ relates to the church. See, we're putting it in its appropriate biblical context. Speak encouraging words with wisdom. Don't let any unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. See, that's spiritual stuff here. We grieve the Spirit when our relationships are not chesed relationships. Speak gospel grace words with humility. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. But why? Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Gospel's coming in here. Just as in Christ, God forgave you keep teaching their principles. Word them however you want. Steal them from me. I don't care. But do it in a gospel-centered foundation. See, our unity, our hesed, grows in the soil of sharing Christ's gospel of grace with one another. Grace that's received and shared and given together. We weave, we cleave, we leave, we cleave, and we weave is a, Third part here, where Paul talks, excuse me, uh, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Let's talk a little bit about what this weaving is all about. We show the picture of the unity candle and and this coming together. The meaning is is the merging of two into one. Now, most of the time, when we think of this merging of two into one and bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, you know what we think it means is sexual uh, union. Sexual intimacy, it means that, but it means more in the Hebrew. It's basar. It's a word for flesh in the Hebrew. And the Hebrew way of thinking about the human personality was never to think of flesh as only flesh and not soul, spirit, combined. So it's talking here about not only sexual unity, it's talking all about soul unity, being soulmates together. That's what Adam was saying and communicating. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, embodied personality of my embodied personality, soul of my soul. It was used of the strands of silk that were woven together in themselves, very weak, but woven together a beautiful, strong tapestry. You know, when I think about this, it's kind of a silly illustration. I can be silly sometimes. I love the old... Christmas movies, remember the, the Rudolph and the Claymation? I think it was made in 1964. But there's a great scene where, where it's really that whole thing is all about misfits. And I think there's a great gospel message even in there, that the misfits that, that are brought to somebody that accepts misfits. And we're sinful misfits accepted by grace. But that's another story. But you've got Rudolph feeling like a misfit, getting ready to, to run away. You've got Hermes, the elf, who wants to be a dentist instead of fixing toys. An elf that can't fix toys! And so they get together and they've got this scene where, where they say, let's be independent together. Just kind of even the cadence always strikes me. Let's be independent together. Well, really, what they were saying and what weaving talks about is, is developing an interdependence. That's what's being described here, that weaving together so there's an interdependent relationship. If that's the idea behind it, then, then why is weaving vital from a Christ-centered, spirit-dependent perspective? Well, let's go back to the unbiblical marital reality. Two ticks and no dog. If you teach weaving, especially the way it's typically taught, you know what, it, what the couple's hearing? Yes, fun sex without guilt. Now, that's part of the beauty of marriage, right? The, the marriage bed is undefiled. But that's certainly pretty surface and pretty selfish if that's all that we're thinking about. But if we put it into a gospel-centered perspective, the biblical marital reality, it it becomes something like this physical and soul oneness that, again, somehow reflects the oneness, the unity and diversity of the Trinity. The, The Greek church fathers would talk about perichoresis to describe the Trinity. Don't let that big word intimidate you. Perry is around. Chorus, not a musical chorus, but a dance chorus. It was a picture of the eternal dance of intimacy of the Trinity. So part of what's being talked here in this interdependence is we have an opportunity as husbands and wives and as we're counseling husbands and wives or premarital couples to help them to say, your relationship can reflect something not much more than just fun sex. Even your fun sex done to minister and, and to bring joy to your spouse can reflect something of the great unity and diversity, the perichoresis of the Trinity. Now, I think we can talk about some practical implications of the weaving process i call them tapestry principles you could develop these on your own but a few things i talk to couples about i I want them to understand that to unravel the relationship is to ruin if it's a weaving together so i want to talk about d words like divorce how divorce ruins something that's meant to be bound together but i want to talk about division my parents unfortunately divorced when i was in ninth grade and i remember how my Romanian grandmother was so enraged at my mom. And I remember even as an unsaved ninth grader thinking something like this. Well, you and Mosho, Boonie and Mosho, Romanian for grandma and grandpa, I, as a ninth grader, I remember thinking, you two hate each other's guts. All you do is scream at each other. There was something wrong even in my unsaved mind with their pig. Divorce is horrible. And I'm not saying discord is an excuse for divorce. That's not what I'm saying at all. But their discord and division was also horrible. Uh, the D words, discord and, and division and divorce, to, to unravel is to ruin. And I want couples to understand it's to, it ruins a picture of the Trinity. It ruins a picture of Christ and the church. It not only ruins each other's souls, but it ruins... a great, Now, if anybody here has been divorced... I'm not wanting to heap condemnation. Remember, there is grace and there is forgiveness, and God can bring healing to those ruins. But before the fact, we want to communicate that to ruin, to unravel is to ruin. And we want to help the couple to understand who we are together in Christ. A very simple way of putting it, not me, but we. And not only just not me, but we, but not me, but we in Christ. That's what I want to help a couple to think about. Not just about me. It's not even about the two of us. It's about the two of us in Christ and for Christ's glory. That's a tapestry principle built on gospel-centered thinking. And then third, we weave one shared husband-wife grace narrative. It's a new story, a new grace story that we're weaving together. And the husband and wife begin to understand our marriage is one chapter in this eternal story of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We get to be a piece, a chapter, maybe a page in the story, the redemptive narrative that God is writing. And finally, the receiving part. Leave, cleave, weave, and receive. Naked and unashamed. What is receiving? Well, the meaning is intimacy. One of my students at Capital Bible Seminary likes to say, into me see. I like that, intimacy. Into me see. You open up so the person can see into your soul. This idea of naked and unashamed is used throughout the Old Testament for kind of the idea of acceptance with awareness. It's not just I accept you and I'm blind, blind to your faults, but I'm aware of your faults and weaknesses, and I accept you like Christ accepts us by grace. Now the picture here is Adam and Eve, and it's always difficult to look at that image there to find a picture of Adam and Eve that somehow pictures naked and unashamed. Because we don't want to be lewd in any way, but I think just something in their facial image of acceptance and awareness is illustrated even in that image there. Well, why receiving is vital from a Christ-centered, spirit-dependent perspective? Let me start, as we have each time, with the unbiblical marital reality. If the couple doesn't get the gospel-centered purpose of marriage and you teach them about receiving and naked and unashamed, here's what it is. Yes, you're going to wink at my sin. I can be a mess and it doesn't matter because you've got to accept. He told you in the counseling session to accept me no matter what. Now, hopefully that's not what we ever said. Accept you. It's not winking at our sin. The biblical marital reality is more like Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, He was fully aware, not simply of our weaknesses, but of our rebellion, our sinfulness, our spiritual adultery. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's, it's awareness of sinfulness with acceptance by grace. See, this is where there's a calling to speak the truth in love, to be truthing in love to our spouse. What would happen if all of us in the biblical counseling world who are married decided that the first and primary place we would apply our biblical counseling equipping was to our husband-wife relationship. Especially if it's an approach to counseling that isn't just sin spotting, but a compassionate concern that builds Christ into another person that, that's comforting them when they're hurting, that's patient when they need patient, that's care fronting when, when they are dealing with a besetting sin. That's really what's being talked about here in receiving. It's speaking the truth in love. Now we can give some practical Implications. One example of, of what I might call intimacy instructions. You can come up with your own. But the first one I would say is risk openness. I encourage husbands and wives, premier, start being open with one another. It takes a risk. Be honest about things you're struggling with. Risk openness, but not in a way that says, because I know my spouse will never challenge me on that, but in a way that says, I want to be honest with my spouse so they can help me to grow more like Christ and, of course, when somebody is open, respond graciously. Respond with grace. Too many couples, if it's coming from a, a me perspective, yeah, you were open and I'm going to use that against you. How many times in your marital counseling with couples have you heard that? Maybe even in your counseling, the husband admitted some sin in, in thought life or action or attitude, and the wife maybe brings it up again and again and again. The husband in that illustration has risked openness, and the wife is not responding graciously with grace. And then restore humbly, naked and unashamed. We look at each other as people in need of progressive sanctification and we restore one another humbly. We enter deeply into each other's lives for the purpose of gospel growth. Now think about that. We enter deeply into each other's lives for the purpose of gospel growth. I said a moment ago is, is a great exclamation of what we've been talking about here. Help couples to understand, especially couples that know anything about biblical counseling, apply biblical counseling to your marriage relationship. Not in a one up, I'm the counselor, you're the failure. Which should never be our attitude anyway, right? But in a we both are, as Paul Tripp says, people in need of change, helping people in need of change, and we change gospel growth for God's glory. As we wrap up and I close in prayer, take me at home with us. A couple questions for you to ponder. How will your biblical marriage counseling be different when you build it upon God's narrative of the ultimate purpose of marriage? Then I say, consider other practical implications we use in marriage counseling. Communication skills, conflict resolution. How would you use these differently now with the Christ-centered, spirit-dependent focus? I hope I've created in you a bit of a, a brief hesitancy when you're thinking about some quick surface principle and you say, have I helped the couple understand the gospel idea behind this principle before I share the principle with them? That hesitancy will be a good one for God's glory. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these men and women committed to all types of counseling by being here self-selecting into this session, obviously committed to marriage counseling. And Father, I've confessed to them already and to you in the past, that I practiced this two ticks and no dogs, principles, imperatives without indicative in the past. And Father, I pray you would, would by your spirit, help each of us not to practice counseling like that, but that we would be gospel-centered counselors in our lives and in our ministries. We would focus first on the change that has been made by Christ and the the Christ-centered purposes of our marriages, before we move to principles. But Father, I pray you not cause us by Satan's interference to think somehow that biblical principles are wrong. Father, don't allow that lack of balance either. Help us to understand that there are great, incredibly practical biblical principles that we can share with our counselees, our couples, and our own marriages if we'll but build those upon gospel-centered perspectives. We need your help in this as we want to be Christ-centered and spirit-dependent. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Copyright 2013, IBCD, All Rights Reserved. More free audios can be found on our website at www.ibcd.org.